Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. From Milieu Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Bronner. This is season one, episode 10 and a half, Going the Distance with Phil Robinson. Hello, friends, and welcome to a special bonus episode of 30 Pop. I mentioned in episode 10 that I had a really cool interview schedule, but that the guest, Phil Robinson, forgot to call in. Well, allow me to clarify. I realized pretty shortly after releasing that episode that that probably wasn't the case. See, I was coordinating that interview with his management company, and I sent them the information for the phone call on Thursday evening, before the holiday weekend when their offices were closed. So Phil didn't actually get the info till after the episode had released. Apologies for the misinformation. I was not stood up. In fact, when Phil and I were able to connect on Tuesday of this week, he was an absolute delight to talk to. So here's my conversation with Oscar-nominated writer and director of Field of Dreams, Phil Robinson. Phil, welcome to 30 Pop. Thanks so much for being on today. It's a pleasure, Luke. It is absolutely a pleasure for me, too. So I'm a huge fan of Field of Dreams, which you wrote and directed, correct? Uh, yes, from, I adapted a book called Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinsella. Okay, so can you give me a little bit of backstory on that? I saw that. So is Shoeless Joe truly just the story of Shoeless Joe, or is it the story in Field of Dreams? Oh, it's the story of Field of Dreams, for sure. Okay. Bill Kinsella was a Canadian writer who had gone to the Iowa Writers' Workshop, fell in love with Iowa, and wanted to write about Iowa. And he also loved baseball, and he he loved a whole bunch of things that he was able to squeeze into the book. And we we didn't really have time to include them all in the movie. But it's it's a wonderful book, and I highly recommend it. Beautiful. I definitely want to check it out. So the Kinsella name, was was it Kinsella in the book also, Ray Kinsella? Yeah, it's actually, he had written some short stories and wanted to get, J.D. Salinger in this book, and he couldn't figure out how to get him in, so he went back and reread some early Salinger and found that there was a character named John Kinsella in two of Salinger's early stories, and he thought, well, that's what it is. I'll name my character after me, and I'll say that I just got obsessed with the fact that my name was in these other books. So in the book, it's actually J.D. Salinger. It's not Terrence Mann. Not Terrence Mann. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the way that you directed this film. One of my favorite things when I rewatched it, you waste no time jumping into like the meat of the story. I mean, there's this sort of opening montage that's showing old baseball cards, which I love actually have Ray Liotta on them. But then, I mean, very first scene, really the first voice that we hear in the film is the if you build it, he will come voice. What was the thought process for you of kind of just jumping right in at the cornfield? Well, what's interesting is I do it less abruptly than the book does. The book begins with the farmers in the field and he hears a voice. Really? He goes to his wife and says to her, I think I have to build a baseball field so Shoeless Joe Jackson can come back. I mean, he doesn't have (laughs) multiple iterations of the voice. He just goes right for it and she says, well, if you feel you have to, then do it. That's page two. And I fell in love with this book because of that. I thought, wow, they don't waste any time getting to it. And I also loved 
that the character of a wife, which traditionally is the character who says, no, 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 you can't do this, it's going you know, mm-hmm. to jeopardize our farm, that she's right there with him in it. And I wrote the first draft that way, and a friend of mine, a very smart friend of mine, read it, and she said, you know, it works in the book, but if you're watching on screen in real life, it's going to look like they're both crazy, so you've got to give him a little doubt. And she was right, and, and so that's why it takes him a few voices before he finally buys into it. But I loved starting the movie that abruptly. That was one of the things that really jumped out. I mean, that and just the chemistry between Kevin Costner and Amy Madigan. I mean, like I said, I haven't read the book, but I can't imagine those characters working more perfectly together. Oh, great. They were wonderful together. And, you know, they get equal credit for that. Amy is is a wonderful actress, and she's spunky, and she's funny. and, And I wanted an actress for that role that had the kind of sort of inner strength that we understand that if she had said, no, you can't do this, then he wouldn't have done it. The other thing that I noticed about her personality, really both of their personalities in the film, is I totally believe that these people were like kids in the 60s, you, you know, know but, but that are now kind of growing up and dealing with real life. And But you still sort of see those hints. I mean, her being really confrontational at the school meeting and mm-hmm. even just the attitude that she has about that. You know, I just believe it. I believe the backstory that they're given. So I'll tell you a funny thing about that is, the week that we were getting ready to shoot the farmhouse, the art department was in the house and they were dressing the set and we were going to start on a Monday morning. And on that Sunday, I thought, you know, I should go out to the farmhouse and just see how they're doing with the set. But Sunday was our, our only day off. I was exhausted. We'd been shooting for you know a couple of months at this point. And I just didn't have the energy. And I thought, no, I'd better go. And so I slept out to the set on that Sunday. And, and the uh, set dressing crew was there putting the finishing touches on it. And my heart just sank when I saw it. And the set decorator, who's a very good friend of mine, said, I can see something's wrong. What's wrong? And I didn't say to her, it looks like an old lady lives here, but that is what it looked like. I said to her, I don't see Berkeley in the 60s in this. She said, I know exactly what you mean. Go away. Come back tomorrow morning. It'll be fine. And the next morning was perfect. So one of my favorite moments, and there may be several of these that you just say, well, that was all Bill Kinsella. I don't know. But some of it I I trust has to be you and has to be the actors pulling this off. So there's a scene where in the middle of the night, Ray is up. He's talking about Shoeless Joe, just kind of telling her details about Shoeless Joe's life. She turns the light on and the dialogue immediately shifts to his fear of turning into his father. He says, I'm 36 years old. I have a wife a child and a mortgage, and I'm scared to death. I'm turning into my father. Right. And then he says, I never forgave him for getting old. By the time he was as old as I am now, he was ancient. I think that is such brilliant writing. I don't necessarily share the experience, but I totally resonate with it. Oh, I'm so glad. That line means a lot to me because it was my father who said that to me once. He said I, I, he never forgave his father for getting old. Oh, that's just such a powerful line. really stuck with me. And I thought it explained a lot about their relationship. I mean, it wasn't a contentious one. He didn't act on not forgiving him. But I always understood the disappointment that he had when his father got old. Because in those days, old, you know, in your 60s, you were like a decrepit old man. I remember my grandfather when when he was younger than I am today, and, and he just struck me as ancient. And I think that, you know, the gen- our generation, I grew up in the, in the 50s and 60s, that was a really, really major issue for us, is what are we going to do when we get old? Mm-hmm. Can we hold on to our ideals? Can we still be who we are now? And, and I think that that's one of the struggles of my generation, is we're still working out what it means to grow up and to get older. And I, I wanted to give that 
struggle to these characters. Another sort of creative device that I think that you use is the way that you go about giving us the history and backstory of Shoeless Joe just while he's riding around in the tractor with his daughter or he's talking to his wife and they're, you know, he's just telling them the story. I thought that was like a really clever way to keep the story moving, but helping, uh, you know, to inform those of us who don't know about this Black Sox scandal, you know, I thought that was very clever. Oh, thanks. Well, I'm a big believer in don't stop the story. And there was this exposition that we had to get out. We had to let the audience know something about Shoeless Joe and the Black Sox, just so they understood where Ray was coming from. And I just couldn't bear the thought of stopping the story to do that. So I, I found, as, as I was writing, I thought, oh, I know, we're going to have to show him building the field. This is good stuff to put in there. And, and having the daughter, it was a nice father-daughter moment. And, and it all sort of worked out there. Another thing that you did was, I assume, to build tension. There's a moment where they're laying out on the field and he's talking to his wife. And she says, that's the first time I've ever seen you smile when you mention your father. That's one of my favorite shots in the movie because we shot it right at Magic Hour. Magic Hour is a misnomer. It's really only about 15 minutes. It's a, yeah. a certain point when the light in the sky is sort of the same as the light on the faces. And, and it doesn't last long. We shot that over a couple of nights. And we just had, we lucked out. We happened to pick nights that had beautiful, beautiful sunsets. So that scene was, uh, I'm very happy with that scene. So the first scene when Ray is meeting Shoeless Joe, which is really this pretty magical scene, there's a couple things I'm just so curious if they were on purpose or if they just sort of happened. One is Ray's first time swinging. He's trying to, you know, I guess Shoeless Joe's out in the field. He wants to field some balls and Ray swings and the ball just goes straight down and he's obviously embarrassed. Was that scripted or was that just a happy accident? That was definitely scripted, yes. Well, he executed it well. Well, hard for Kevin because he's a really, really, really good baseball player. I wondered that because he had just done Bull Durham and I thought there's got to be some history here. Yeah, he said to me, he says, you know, this is hard. He says, I have to get out there and look like a duck. (laughs) Yeah. Even when he's pitching to Shoeless Joe, he has to look like a guy who's not a very good pitcher. Yeah, right after that. He says, see if you can hit my curb. Mm-hmm. And he hits the ball directly at him. Was that also planned? Well, the way I shot that scene is that we set the camera up, and I said to Kevin, just pitch to him. And Ray Liotta had been working with some baseball coaches to develop a really beautiful swing. And, and we just kept the camera going. And I was hoping something like that would happen, but you can't really plan for it. And so he, he pitched to him quite a bit. And fortunately, Kevin had the presence of mind when that ball came right back at him you know, to go with it and to remember the line from that scene. But we had to loop that scene. We had to replace the dialogue because just as Shoeless Joe hits the ball at him and Kevin falls out of the way, the script supervisor screamed. <laughs> she thought he'd really gotten hurt. And so we had to loop the scene to get rid of her scream. That's great. Okay, a couple more lines I want to point out. Sorry, I'm kind of a words guy. So there was a whole lot of just the text that really jumped out at me. One particular moment, so it's the field is built, he's out on the field having wine with his wife, and he stands up and there's just this expression on his face that's so happy, and he says, I've just created something totally illogical. And then she stands up and she says, that's what I like about it. I just, that moment is so sweet, and I just, I feel what he's feeling, you know? Well, it's also, you know, I have to say that anybody who creates art, whether it's a, somebody who does a podcast or a novelist or a painter or a filmmaker, understands the idea of, I'm just going to trust my instincts here. This doesn't logically make sense, but I kind of feel like this is the way it ought to go. And so that sense of I've just created something totally illogical and being proud of it was meaningful to me. And I think it's meaningful to a lot of people just because there's so much pressure on us all to be logical and to make sense. 
And every once in a while, it's really good to, as Talking Heads said, stop making sense. Man, that's so true. So another, I think, really important line, pretty profound line, actually, is when Moonlight Graham says, we just don't recognize the most significant moments of our lives while they're happening. That's another one of those lines that is just so resonant for me. That's from the book. And in a way, it's part of what the movie's about. Yeah, it feels like a thesis statement, kind of. Yeah, it sure does. And it's so true. It's so true. When you look back on the moments in your life that turned out to be the fulcrums where things changed, they're often not big moments that would be uh, underscored and underlined. They're moments that kind of slip by you, and then later on you realize, wow, that was, everything changed right there. Mm. You know, when I met this person and fell in love, or when I made, when somebody offered me this job out of the blue, or any number of things that just kind of happen, and you want to be open to those moments and not closed off to them. And sometimes they work out and sometimes they don't. But boy, sometimes they're hugely important to you. Man, that's so good. One of the most powerful emotional moments for me to watch is when we have Archibald Moonlight, you know, Doc Graham walking out into the corn at the end and Shoeless Joe, Ray Liotta, who I think is, by the way, brilliant in this film. I I did not realize how incredible of an actor he is. When he says, hey, rookie, you were good. Oh my gosh, I just almost lost it the other night. (laughs) watching that moment and it's so perfectly captured in the way that the doc sort of pauses before he turns around and you know oh it's just such a powerful moment oh great so you were nominated for a couple of oscars for this right uh, the film was nominated for best picture and i was nominated for adapted screenplay and james horner for the brilliant score that he composed that's incredible well congratulations to you on 30 years of what i truly believe to be one of the greatest sports films in american film history i mean truly it's magical as i was watching it i just kept wanting to tell you like you know first of all we have this film that i always thought of it as a sports film and it's really so much more than that sports are sort of like more of a setting for this great fantasy and it really makes no sense <laughs> the story <laughs> makes no sense and all i kept wanting to tell you i was like i hope i could talk to him because i wanted to say to you you've made something completely illogical and that's what i like about it <laughs> thank you that's the best compliment <laughs> truly it is a masterful work and i am so thankful for the opportunity to get to talk to you and to feature you on 30 Pop, thank you so much for making the film and for being a part of the show. Well, thanks for being so nice. This was really fun, and uh, again, good luck with the podcast series. It sounds great. All right, bye, Phil. Bye-bye. Huge thanks to Phil for taking the time to chat with me about this incredible movie. If you haven't seen it in a while, or if somehow you never saw it at all, it's currently streaming on Hulu, and rest assured, friends, it holds up. It's a truly remarkable film. Now I'll be back Monday with a really fun, really full episode celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Disney Channel show that introduced us to the likes of Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake, Ryan Gosling, Christina Aguilera, J.C. Chazé, and Carrie Russell. The all-new Mickey Mouse Club. I promise you don't want to miss it. Thanks so much for listening, friends. Until Monday, remember the sweet words of Karen Kinsella. Daddy, there's a man on your lawn. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Milieu Media Group, visit milieumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 1989 that you want to share on the air, email 30poppodcast at gmail.com.